Alvin Lee for ushering us in again today here on our two-hour get-together and today's date stamp is uh, the 11th 311 uh, 21 March is a big month for me my mom's got a birthday this month and a number of things have gotten done in my life in March it seems like anyway we're here right almost to the Ides of March beware the Ides of March anybody remember hearing that uh, Roger Sales with your host Radio Ranch, People's Patriot Network, all that stuff with a forum on Jitsi. And it's it's really refreshing, honestly, to get onto the program and see six, eight, ten people on here get on early and waiting to either listen or participate. And it didn't used to be that way in the old days. And it shows me we're making some progress. And sometimes at the end of the show, like yesterday, or even when Brent's on tomorrow, there'll be 16 to 20 people on with us and it's uh it's good refreshing to get the feedback for us because it shows we're getting a little traction and that's good so welcome to a whole bunch of you i see the double h's are here honey badger and harvey both and we were talking with raj on a little technical stuff right before the program about uh, something we mentioned the other day it keeps you know how your mind keeps throwing stuff at you and uh, uh, since uh, I stumbled on it last weekend, this Zorin, Z-O-R-I-N, uh, was the name of the program. And it's uh, basically a substitute for Windows um, 7 and X, X, XP and machines. And uh, it looks like a very interesting little interface. And I'm wanting to play with it. And we were talking about it right before the program. Some of you that may not heard that the other day. I know Terry that was supposed to come back with us Tuesday was saying he just bought a new machine and he was quite interested in putting it on there to see how it did. Interesting little interface that avoids windows and gives you a little bit. It actually overrides a Linux platform and utilizes the Linux commands through an interface that is very similar to windows. That's about the simplified version of it, isn't it, Raj? And, uh, so anyway, there's a lot of stuff going on, obviously, uh, right before the show, I was listening to a pastor who had been with a group of about 200 people. I'm only just a little bit into the, uh, into the interview. I'm kind of anxious to listen to the, the rest of it later after the program, but he was up in DC with a group of about 200 people. It seems to be from Greenville area in South Carolina and, uh, the great state of South Carolina and, uh, was talking about uh, the walking up to the Capitol and hearing people banging on the doors and yelling no Antifa and the obvious false flag that they're going to have a hard time covering this one up. Okay. Uh, the too many cameras, too much proof, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of interesting things bubbling. I had a conversation with my good old friend Harvey last night, called me, and he it seems like he has drafted his affidavit and is getting ready to uh, send that rascal in. Is that right, Harvey? He might not be in a position to talk. I called uh, him. There he is. I'm, I, I'm, in the, I'm in position to talk. I'm vertical. Okay. Uh, no, that's uh, – yeah, we're, we're ready to put this baby in the hands of the post. Postal okay. service, as it's called these days. Well, I'm glad because that's a really specific example, and I wanted to utilize that to, to, to talk about how this takes a while to filter down to people, okay? 
Now, Harvey and I have known each other almost 30 years, as you've heard me say before, and uh, we're close friends, you know, and able to communicate and contact each other and stuff, uh, person to person and all that. I've went down in the basement many times of the old house right next to Phipps <laughs> Plaza. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so all these years, he's seen me go through this. He's seen me go through the entire development of, I had already stumbled on John and Glenn, I guess, by the time you and I met, but my understanding of this information was very rudimentary at that point. And, and I kept doing the presentations every week and only knowing the tax side of it, as I've told you guys, the advantage we've got is you don't have to have somebody's attention for three hours of HIV of legal concepts and history to show them what the meaning of non-resident alien is at 26 CFR. Okay. And that's essentially what we were doing. Didn't have any idea the other side of it, just that tax side. And so all those years and uh, our different ways, Harvey got detoured, taking care of his, uh, of his elderly mom there until she passed and some of that stuff. But then we've always kind of stayed in contact peripherally, even when we were off and I was off in Argentina and all that. Um, yeah. but you knew about this, you knew I had a book out and you were detained with mom when that came out. Uh, but then here about, I don't know how many months ago, six, eight, ten months ago, a year ago, stumbled back in, started getting the grasp of this, uh, had your arms around it. And it's taken all that time to get to the point where to maybe today you're going to take a certified return receipt requested, uh, tag and shoot it off to the boys up there telling them, Hey, you're a bunch of lying magician freaks okay yeah, you ain't got no exactly power the, over me the, those words are a lot lot gentler than the ones i'd uh, choose to use <laughs> call them everything but gentlemen i mean when you get to a point of understanding this stuff when you see what this really is it is nothing but a bunch of these shriveled up old bastards throwing a magic veil up there it's exactly like the yellow brick road and the wizard of oz i mean that's yep. an exact parallel of what's happening okay and well i named yep. us for a while harvey i was gonna id us as the totos mm. Named after the dog or after the Latin word Toto? After the little dog that pulled the curtain back so all the adults could see yeah. what the hell was going on. Now, that yeah. dog that dog is a particular breed of dog. Does anybody know what Toto was? I don't remember. Was it a Yorkshire? No, it was a Carn Terrier. Oh, yeah, Carn okay. Terrier. Now, I know about that because I owned Scotties and Westies previously in my life, yeah. and they're both related, and the Carn yeah. Terrier is the other breed. There were some that were white, there were some that were black, and there were some that were brown. And they never knew when a, when a bitch had a litter which ones were going to come out. Okay, and in fact, in, in, I own two Westies and uh, love that breed of dog, West Highland White Terrier, and they would kill the white dogs when they when they were born because they thought they were cursed. Okay, really? Yes. And what happened? They think they came over and got off of the when the some of the Spanish Armada uh, crashed in in that battle. Uh, they're in the. Yeah. Uh, uh, straits and they yep. think some of them escaped because the spanish were using them as ratters okay because they're good hunters mm -hmm. as you know that breed and so when the white ones were born they would they would kill the white dogs thinking they were cursed 
And so what happened was one of these noble guys was out hunting one day uh, with, with his best friend, and they were doing the fox hunt thing. And his best friend mistook his favorite dog for a fox and shot it. And the guy was so distraught, he said, I'll never, ever raise anything but the white dogs again. I'll be doggone. Yeah. So anyway, the the little dog that pulled the curtain back on the on the wizard with the old shriveled wizard pressing the buttons and pulling the levers was Toto, and he was a breed called a Carn Terrier. There, they've had some different appearances in films and stuff over the years. Good little dogs, all those terriers. I sure do like them. Well, they're ferocious little dogs. Uh, you know, ratting as they call it uh, is. Uh, a very low class, but uh, uh, captivating sport over in the British Isles. They'll go out, you know, if you go on YouTube, I've watched them. <laughs> Man alive, those dogs go after rats like you wouldn't believe. It's uh, just uh, just phenomenal. They, they'll grab them, they'll jump on them and shake them. They're dead. They drop it. They go for another one. It just—it's—it's uh, it's amazing. These farms, farms uh, looked like they were put out there to breed rats. They got all this trash lying around, so the rats have free reign. And somebody will take his dogs, or a team of men will take the dogs out there and take a tractor and start disturbing the 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 rubbish on the on the soil and they run it's, yeah boy do they run yeah so well that's what's uh, going to happen as we pull the edge of the blanket up on these rats and the more people that can file that piece of paper and let those rats know that the people know about them and the game is the the more scared they get and the ready to run they are because let me tell you what they've been buying underground bunkers and places like new zealand for a long time go, go, yeah. going up to what's coming okay well, they can get what's coming to them, uh, either in this life or the next. Count on it. Well, uh, uh, so anyway, you're about to put that thing in the mail. The, the analogy I was bringing, because you were on the line, yeah. Harv, and our longstanding relationship and the fact that it takes a while for people to process this and get to the point like it is with Harvey today of a day of action, see? And it's when, at my understanding, Harvey, it's just like the IRS, who we were also discussing last night, when they put yeah. something in the mail to you, even though you've moved three or four times, when the last address they have on file, when they give it to, to Jeff uh, when he was still working to process there, it's immediately considered received. And it's yep. the same thing here. The minute it is put into their official organ of carrying correspondence, especially with a green certified return receipt requested tag, it's considered received. So congratulations if you get over there and get that done today. Uh, on yep. Freedom Day for you would be March the 11th. How about that? I hadn't thought about it that way, but uh, uh, I do have my plans now and uh, my fellow black marine trucker uh brent and i talked about it last night and he had some suggestions 
And I thought we'd just wait until we had other things to discuss, like, you know, other things. Uh, I said, well, I was going to bed. It was late. It was late for him, too, but, you know, I'm three hours, <laughs> three hours ahead of him. So it's hard uh, for me to believe looking back 25 years ago at those CCG meetings when we'd all gather on Tuesday night, wasn't it? Tuesday yeah, night or what? It was. it was Tuesday night, I think. And, yeah. and I remember Brent, I'd walk up to the front of the, uh, the old Castle Gate Hotel there, this old Tudor style in the English Tudor style dilapidated hotel that we met at. With uh, mold, the smell of mold. Yeah, it, you know, it had, it was one of those hotels that was so old that they had, so you could smell the de cleansing thing all over the hotel from they used on the old rugs, you know, that kind of a, yeah, a dank kind of smell when you walk. It's like walking into a um, a used clothes shop. It doesn't matter yeah. which one; they all smell the same. Okay. Well, you're right. The you you hit exactly the right word, and that is dank. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, walk up to the front of the thing. Had a drive under thing there, if I remember right, and uh, walk up, and there'd be Brent right at the front. This big black guy, big as the side of a house, man. And go, hey, Brent, uh, glad to see you because you didn't make it all the time. I guess you were conflicted with work at times, but and Harvey and uh, who else? Who else hangs around from those days? Uh, I guess you two are the the main two, uh, but that was a good group we had. Um, you remember we had we had one other black guy. Well, had, we had several, several. But, uh, yeah. but you remember Ardran Taylor? Yeah, I sure do. He was a really good guy. I and kept up he, with him for a long time after I left Atlanta. Actually, I did too, and uh, I've still. He passed away. Did he? Uh, yeah, several years ago. He's one of these black guys that caught right on to this. Okay. He was so funny. Yeah, he was a he, real good guy. And uh, Ardran and I talked an awful lot uh, uh, up until just uh, a few weeks before he died. And, of course, it was cancer. And uh, he's been some good I ones. Been some good yeah, ones. I'll tell said, you who, who I'm, I'm. I miss David Strait so much I can't even verbalize it. Okay. Yeah. And, yeah. He uh, was Ron Brown. Was, Ron Brown too. You know, yeah. it's funny with speaking of this, the way this hits you, because this guy we're talking about was one of my closest friends I think I've ever had, and we met. He had gone, had a big tax problem. He's one of these insurance guys. You know, I mentioned it the other day. There was a lot of insurance guys in the tax movement that were looking for answers because they're on these big residuals that they signed, like group insurance plans and stuff. And they get these huge residuals every time they renew those those, uh, contracts. And the IRS just simply goes in and nabs it. See, and so there's a lot of insurance guys in the tax movement, and Ron had heard about John and Glenn somehow, and had flown down to Tampa because they were in Tampa before they hit Atlanta, and so he'd gone through the weekend seminar down there, and then when they came to Atlanta, and we were going to start a regular meeting, he showed up at the first meeting, which incidentally, 
James was our buddy, our new buddy James was asking me this the other night for his spouse. Okay. And because we were holding it at another insurance guy's office out there in Coger Center, right by Spaghetti Junction. Those of you who know anything about Atlanta know where that went, is. Okay. I went to one there. Okay. And so I walked oh. up and I was, and Ron was sitting there at the door waiting. He's the only one. He and I were the only ones, I think, maybe that showed up, you know. But, and here he is dressed up because he always dressed up in three-piece suits like a Philadelphia lawyer, okay? That's right. And, and here he is in his Philadelphia lawyer outfit, and we meet each other, and I'll just never forget it. It was one of those instant bonds, you know, and we just got to be great friends. And Ron went through this whole thing with me, and he used to have the hardest time understanding this, okay? And then he drifted away and got off on other stuff, and I kept at it after all these years. And when I finally got a hold of the answer, uh, I got a hold of him, and he couldn't even find his affidavit. Okay, and so he he had filed it. This is a wrinkle for some of you newer folks. We used to file those at the property records office. That was just part of what John and Glenn's deal entailed. And because that's public records and that's public notice, all right? So now you got them on notice. Uh, and Ron actually went back to the Gwinnett County Property Records Office and pulled his affidavit. <laughs> so it's lucky he filed it, okay? And he went and pulled his affidavit, and he called me and said, You know, Roger, I read that thing, and I understood it completely. It's just that length of time just like we were alluding to earlier with Harvey, for those of you who are presenting this to people, it takes a while to percolate. It's like a coffee, the old percolator. You know, it, when it starts, your coffee ain't done. It's not done till the percolating cycle finishes, okay? And the, the coffee pot will tell you when that happens. And this is very similar. Some folks dive into the deep end of the pool real quick. Some folks have to wade in a little at a time. But it just generally with most folks, my experience is it takes a while. I've alluded it back to untying the knots because I think that's technically what you're doing is going into your controlling subconscious mind, controls 90% of what you do in your day, and that's where the devil has done his deed, and you got to go back in there and approach each one of those equivocations. That's an equivocation, one word with different definitions, and you've got to take the false one and get rid of it and instill the true one. And every time that you do that, a, a little slice of reality comes your way. And pretty soon you make the transition, okay? But it takes a little bit of time. So I was just thinking about that hard from our conversation last night. Congratulations on getting to the point of action of getting that done, and maybe you'll inspire a few other folks. Well, let me tell you, I, I ran it by you. And I ran it by uh, Daryl, and I ran it by Brent, and I ran it by... Lou Patrick, hmm. LP, liquefied petroleum. Be glad when he gets back. Yeah, should be the first of May. Mm -hmm. We we talked night before last. Uh, maybe it was last night, and I, I don't know. <laughs> he's over. He's over on the other side of the world, packing up and getting ready to move back home. Yep, yep, that he is. Uh, I, I expect some. Really, I expect some great things from him when he comes home. 
Yeah. He's not he's not playing airline pilot anymore. You know, listen, Lou told me something in his email on the side, and he said, if I'd have met, got you, because we've known each other for a number of years, it's just another person. Right. I was in the middle of it. He just didn't grasp it. He had his own IRS problems, and he made this day. He said, if, you'd have got, if I'd have caught you years ago, you'd have saved me half a million dollars. Yep. Yep. That's, that's exactly right. And Daryl comes me, on me. one day. He says, Thanks to Rogers' deal, saved me $125,000 in income tax. For well, those of you who are new to this, you bet that, listen, because that may be one of our better recruiters as we move forward. The vaccination mandate, the gun oppression, and as taxes loom, there's three really rich mine shafts right there. All right, let me tell you about Saturday. Uh, Saturday, uh, I got my younger brother married off and uh delighted to do it married a wonderful gal and they'll they'll be living in south carolina Uh, or actually they may go down to florida he's got his house under contract now join the stampede (laughs) yeah and she's got harvey i've never been happier to be a native floridian yeah yeah prouder I would think, uh, but, uh, but anyhow, uh, at the reception, I was talking to one of my old and oldest and dearest friends who will remain nameless. And he told me that, uh, he and his wife were there, you know, that they've got their house on the market. And he said, well, I just, he said, do you realize how much tax we'll have to pay? We s- sell this house, he said, you know, and he started itemizing it because of the way he handled the money when he built the house. In fact, I built the house for it, and uh, it's huge. It's uh, I don't know whether you're familiar with insulating concrete forms. Yes, yeah, but, I remember when we were playing with those. Yeah, and so you've got a styrofoam form. It's empty in the center and you pour concrete in the middle and you leave the styrofoam form on there and you've got in this case two and a half inches of insulation on each side of the concrete so you got this huge mass well i was teaching school at the time so we built that during the summer and when i went back i had to leave to go back to school and uh, turned it over to someone else to finish. But by the time I left, we had poured over a million pounds of concrete into the walls of that house. A million pounds. And so anyhow, he's got it on the market. And because of a lot of, uh, um, uh, technical matters regarding the money he said you know it looks like we're gonna have to pay a bunch i said wait a minute you don't have to pay a penny (laughs) you don't you don't have to pay a penny and see that gets people's attention because everybody's barometer is your pocketbook that's why taxes was such an effective approach go ahead harvey sorry i just had to inject that yeah so uh i told him about this and i said you know this is what roger's been this is the drum Roger's been banging for years. 
and uh, I told him what I was doing, and uh, it was like I had asked them to to hold my pet rattlesnake for a <laughs> few minutes. <laughs> here, here, this is this is uh, he won't bite. Yeah, this is Earthy, my little uh, pet rattler. Uh, here, hold it. And, you know, I could see fear come over their faces so fast uh, because they were going into the unknown, running into a dark mm-hmm. forest. Mm-hmm. And that's what's going on with everybody, yep. you know. And I was convinced of the legal legitimacy of this a good while ago. But I didn't have my strategies worked out because oh, I've got a okay. lot. I've got a lot of things. You know, it's it's like somebody teaches you to shoot a rifle. That's fine. You know how to shoot a rifle, but do you know how to hunt? Uh uh-uh. uh Sorry, you got to know an awful lot more before you know how to hunt. And um, and this is even more complicated because i've got uh well, you and i went through it last night the things that i'm considering but uh i'm going to war against these people based on my new status remember the movie harry's war yeah yeah i do i think i saw that one time i believe i ought to get a copy of it yeah y'all say i wonder if it's even available anywhere harry you want a good irs movie harry's war yeah that was uh it sort of wimped out at the end as i recall but we'll just we'll rename it harvey's war and it won't wimp out at the end how about that (laughs) yeah uh but but uh i can i can see uh just what sort of uh power this gives me to withstand the government and to uh counterattack well you know it's it's like you know the scripture says uh you know in the scripture Jesus tells the uh uh the apostles and the gates of hell will not prevail against thee and most people think of that, you know, in a defensive manner. But the gates of hell are the defensive fortifications of, of hell. They're not our defenses. It's not our gates that are uh, th- that uh, we're depending on. We're in the assault. Well, you can we're put it when on you, the offensive. When you put that thing in the mail, you have exited the gates of hell. Uh, we may have a few more people. I guess we need to thank people like Chucky the Schmucky Schumer and Pelosi Witch. Uh, no more thoughts and prayers, reads the headline in, in uh, italics. Schumer and Pelosi target gun owners with new reforms. Hello. Well, I'm going to begin uh, proselytizing up here in the north country of the north end of Georgia. And I'm going after gun owners in particular. It's a good market right now. And what a better confrontational group to these people once they know what we know. That's exactly right. I can turn them over to a certain uh, Nevadian 
uh, friend of mine uh, uh, for further instruction on on self-made uh, firearms. See, we got the hammer, and, and we just don't realize it because of all the conditioning and Pavlovian high-level stuff that's been done to us our entire lives. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, and it's interesting as I think about it, Harvey, the more it comes into focus, I've talked about it before. What has happened is when you come out of your mother's womb, you're endowed with your creators, everything he wants, everything he's got planned for you, all that stuff. And immediately at that point, they put a blanket over that. That's mm-hmm. what they're doing. They're putting a blanket over you the minute you come out of your mother's womb. And from that point on, that blanket controls, and you can't get access to those rights through the whole part of your life, however long that's been and wherever you are in that saga individually, until you cross this material. Now the blanket is removed, but you are still a babe. Okay, because you've been covered and sheltered and you've got to go in and get those reinforcements from all of these different stimulus and go in and start the re-empowerment process. I mean, literally, that's what it is. I can see it and identify it because I went through it. And now I've seen some of you guys go through it. So I can not only identify it in me, I can see it happening in you. Okay, long-term relationships here, Honey Badger, uh, Daryl, just a couple, Jeff, uh, others. I don't have as much interaction with and have a chance to observe that and recognize it. But I can see it happening with other people, and I recognize it because it happened with me. Yep. Let me me just say something about your... Uh, <clears throat> remark about your condition at birth and the blanket and all that. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, in a letter to Roger Whiteman, W-E-I-G-H-T-M-A-N, Whiteman, I guess, Whiteman or Whiteman, uh, back in 1826. So this was just, uh, this was less than a month before Jefferson died. You know, remember he died on July 4th. Right. 1826. Um, and he said, uh, the mass of mankind has not been born with saddles on their backs, nor a favored few booted and spurred, ready to ride them legitimately by the grace of God. So there, there, these, uh, these people who, deem themselves to be privileged and gifted and superior were not were not Jeffersonians and that was the uh, of course they were still talking about the uh, the divine right of kings back in those days uh, so that that was one of the uh, things that that Jefferson was referring to, but that's who we're dealing with. We're dealing with these people who feel that they have a right to rule your life. 
And um, by I, the God that made me, I tell you that they don't. And um, I have. It's yeah, all magic, man. And I, uh, last night um, on our forum, uh, somebody threw up something about Civil War stuff. And I had uh, our buddy Samuel. Samuel, you with us? Is that you that I see over there? Yes. Yeah, I'm here. You sent me this. I'll bet two, two or three months ago. Okay, and I opened it from your email, and I, you know, I don't do as much reading as I used to because of my eye stuff usually. But that article that somebody put on the forum stimulated me to go over and read this. Okay, it was something Cody posted, our buddy Cody, who we hadn't seen in a while. Um. And it's the effect of the Jacobins on the pre-Civil War stuff. And I went back last night and read that article, Samuel, and I'm glad you're with us because I wanted to thank you for sending it to me. Okay? That's quite a revealing article. All right? And I believe it's written by De Lorenzo. Okay? And I wanted to read a little bit of it and pick, because it's a fairly long article, but boy, is it good. And what happened was these people up in the Northeast, actually, some of them were this particular guy, John Brown, was born and raised a Puritan. And all of these people, Horace Greeley and others, some of their names are in this article, um, basically took John Brown and substituted him for Christ. Yep. And they were the ones that were all the financiers and the drum beaters and all of this stuff for John Brown as he went about. One of, one of his exploits they cover here was out in Kansas. Remember Kansas, bloody Kansas? Well, a lot of that was John Brown, okay? And the fight over whether the new states were going to be slave or not. And he was this rabid abolitionist guy. And there was a family that had just moved out there, a couple of kids, a wife and a father. They didn't own slaves. They were out there trying to get free land, which is what the other, you know, they wanted to reserve the land for the white free labor, as this article alludes to. And uh, he took the guy and shot him in front of his wife and then killed the children and killed the wife. And they didn't even own slaves. They were poor people from Tennessee looking for a new start. So that was some of the John Brown exploits and stuff. But it was a very interesting article, Samuel, and quite enlightening for me. And I was trying to get find the paragraph here where they described, and they went on a 10-year or more crusade to demonize the Southerners. Okay, and uh, uh, how they were just Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, from the history we've learned out of the Abbeville Institute, nothing was further the, from the truth. It was the southern states that were the prosperous states. Which states? Every one of the southern states were in the top income per capita in the country. And even the lowest one, Arkansas, was above the highest northern state in income per capita. Okay, and you go back and oh, it's amazing if you go back and listen to some of those Abbeville Institute lectures. Okay, especially with Doctor Livingston, uh, 
Um, but anyway, that was the situation, and it was very interesting to me. And Samuel, I'm glad you're on there because I wanted to talk about it, and I wanted to thank you for sending it to me. And sorry it took me so long to get around to it. It must have been predestined. I'll put the link to the article for those of you who may want to read this at the end of today's show description, and it's uh, quite an enlightening article. Yeah. Uh, Roger, uh, we've got uh, enough people on here who have uh, an interest in affidavits and all, and Brent had some comments, he some suggestions he offered to make to me last night. And I said, well, let's just save them for the program. Right. But, you know, I, I asked Brent's opinion because he has a very agile mind he does and yeah boy he does uh and uh brent if you can find your voice uh how about uh turning on the the microphone and uh let's let's talk about here uh, you have to do it in marine style bachman front and center <laughs> I thought we said get your ass up here. But, uh, <laughs> sure, Sergeant Bachman, aye, aye, sir. <laughs> oh, boy. Hey, Brent, you uh, were being uh, talked about. You've got some uh, suggestions and some thoughts on the affidavit? I just got out of bed, and I'm running over to the computer now. And, oh, uh, okay. Then just, just it's no rush. Come back when you're, when you're prepared. We're going to be here for a while few more minutes oh yeah yeah uh i just rolled out you know a little before the crack of 11 myself uh, i got up early this morning i'm getting i'm in training for next week oh yeah yeah uh time change huh time change sunday i'm gonna have to get up earlier it throws me back an hour and uh all these dialectics, man. So anyway, yeah. everything gets started an hour earlier for me, and I've got to get myself in that get up a little earlier mode so I don't <laughs> miss a show. If I'd have slept I'd... as long yesterday, uh, next week as I did yesterday, I'd have missed the program. So I got to get out of that. Well, I got to tell you, I had a great aunt, my mother's aunt Holly, who lived in New Orleans, Nolans. and when it came. Yeah, New Orleans. Uh, we pronounce, well, always pronounce it New Orleans. Uh, well, if when just, you're from down there, it's one word, N-A-W-L-I-N-S. Yeah, well, that, uh, ours had a little, uh, a little New Orleans, you know, kind of like New Orleans. Uh, but anyhow, Aunt Holly, when the time change came twice a year, she was an unhappy woman. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Me Not too. A woman, but I'm I'm unhappy about it. I this know. one's better than but, the other one. But uh, she said they have no business messing with God's time. Amen. <laughs> and she was irreligious, uh, so uh, it amazed me that she that she invoked God's authority to support her position well see since but, I, since i left both countries that i've lived in don't change times and yeah. because i'm tethered back to this show in the u.s i've got to adjust 
And yep. man, it caused me one time, it caused me a big problem. I got caught in Uruguay because I didn't know that Uruguay changed times and Argentina didn't. And I'd gotten uh-huh. over there and I, and I thought I had a return uh, trip waiting for me. And I get to the place where you board the boat and it's all blocked up and dark, man. And I'm stuck in Uruguay. No toothbrush, no change of clothes. Totally oh, pr- impromptu, man. I, I was mad as a wet hen, buddy. <laughs> I'm telling oh. you, you could have fried a egg on my forehead that night. Yeah. How is how is Uruguay? Uruguay is a nice place. I liked it. I've been over. I've spent a lot. Now I haven't been around the whole country. I've only spent time in Montevideo, which is the capital. Okay. Yeah. It's a very interesting scenario. Because our, uh, Uruguay used to be Argentina, okay, and they revolted. And uh, the, the way the geography is, is there's a river there called the River de la Plata, okay? Mm-hmm. And it comes down from the interior, and it goes through a lot of Paraguay, Uruguay, a lot of dams, a lot of that kind of stuff. It's a huge river. In fact, at the river mouth there, it's the largest river mouth in the world. It's 250 miles wide. Okay. Good. Nice. From a little river. All right. And so what happened was when Argentina originally had Uruguay, Montevideo is this fabulous deep water natural port. And it sits mm-hmm. on the southern part of the country there facing the river close to the mouth. Okay. And man, it's a nice port. It's a really nice deep water port from a boy that's been around boats all his life, okay? And so that was the port that Argentina used. But when Uruguay revolted and formed their own country, Argentina had to open up a new port on the southern part of the river called Buenos Aires, okay? Buenos Aires literally translated means good air, all right? And the problem is the globe slants south at that point and as that river is an extremely muddy river the silt fills up all the canals that the big ships can get into Buenos Aires with so they're constantly dredging that thing out but they have a wonderful I mean, it's a cool thing. There's only two places in the world that have them I, I saw there, and that's the between the North and the South Islands of New Zealand and between Buenos Aires and Montevideo. They have one other port called Colonia, but you have to take a bus in, an hour-long bus ride into Montevideo if you go to that port. It's more straight across the river where it's narrower, okay? But there's a long run a reach, I guess you'd call that in sailing, there's a long run diagonally down to Montevideo where you can pull right into the deep water port and you get off the boat and you're right in downtown Mon- old downtown Montevideo. And it's pretty wow. cool. They've got a bunch of the old warehouses and stuff uh, fixed up to where there are markets and, and a groups of restaurants and things like that. And uh, it, it's very cool because you're right in this really old, old city, okay? And uh, But that boat ride is on one of these big catamaran boats. I think the thing is probably, 
at least as long as a football field and maybe longer. Wow. Okay. And it's a huge catamaran, and they've got some huge power plant in each one of those catamarans, two hulls, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about. And the the early times I rode on it, and you'd get in the back there close to the props, and I mean that thing throws up a 10- and 12-foot rooster tail. They're throwing some torque through that. It's a it's a big uh, ferry. You can put cars on there and people and everything else. But they replaced it right before I moved from Argentina with a new one they call Papa because it's named after Pope Francis. Okay, And uh, I rode on that one time, and, and they've improved it. And, Harvey, you can make that run from Buenos Aires to Monte de Veo, and you can look at it on a map. Okay, You can get the perspective, it right but it's a long reach. Okay, They can make yep. that run in an hour and 45 minutes in that boat. That thing goes 45 and 50 knots, okay? And it's just as smooth as riding on a cloud. But yeah, that you know, is. It's super slick. It's called the Buki Bus is what they call it. And uh, you can pop on that thing. you got to go through customs and everything, and you pop on there an hour and 45 minutes later, you are step off in Monte de Veo. It, it's very cool. 60 miles an hour, yeah. Roger. Yeah, I know. That's, I mean, it's uh, amazed me. That's Okay, cause That's it's 128 a, miles from one to the other. It's a, an amazing thing. I'm glad I had the opportunity because it's difficult f- to fly from country to country because they're so close. It's just a little boop, boop, you know? Yeah. And you just hop on that boat, and I like boats, and it was very cool. And I spent a lot of time in Monte de because uh, I set my financial stuff up over there first. Okay. But yeah. even before I went, I moved to Argentina, technically. So uh, I enjoyed it. Here's here's I had I had a very good friend over there that I made. Uh, hadn't touched with him in a while, but he was a drummer and a dentist, and his dad was in the textile industry, so he grew up all over the world. He got his dental license in L.A., so he spoke perfect English, and he was a drummer of, of note in, in local bands there that played for huge events. And so we clicked immediately, you know. Uh, in fact, the way we met, when I was over there in a hotel and I went to dinner, okay? Sorry to get off on some of these stories, but they're interesting, okay? And so yep. I'm in this hotel, and it's, as a lot of the things are, very close to the water there. And I walked down the hill to go to this seafood restaurant that was partially on the water, you know, partially on land, partially some of it's floating or something. Had a moor out there anyway. And I'm in there. I'm by myself, and waitress puts me at a in a little table there and i ordered something to eat and pretty i'm sitting there waiting and eating and i see these guys bringing in like musical equipment of an ovation guitar and and other stuff and they come in and they two guys get up there and one of them's running the percussion stuff and the other one's playing guitar and singing and it's the guy that i'm talking about and so he would did a whole set of beatles songs and i was probably I was probably no more than eight feet away from him. I was at the front table right to the stage, okay? And I know every one of those Beatles songs verbatim, you know, or lyric for lyric. And so I was kind of sitting there mouthing and enjoying it. And he was a real good player. He had a nice guitar, sang good. And so at the end of the set, he puts the guitar down, comes over and sits down with me, you know? And that's how we met and became good friends. And uh, he told me this about Uruguay. He's lived there his whole life. He's an Uruguayan citizen when he wasn't somewhere else. He said it's one of the only countries in the world that has no natural disasters. 
Is that right? They don't have hurricanes, they don't have earthquakes, and they per se don't have floods. Okay. Now, what I don't like about it is that it's at sea level, and you have up north of Monte Deveo, as it goes into Brazil, is some of the most desolate beach land in the world, oceanfront land. Okay. It's it's very sparsely populated up there. At least it was, you know, years ago when I was looking at this. And uh, just north of Monte Deveo, you've got the Miami Beach of South America, Punta del Este. Do you see Punta del Este there, Harv? Oh, uh, where just, is it? It's just to the north, about sixty kilometers, eighty kilometers, or something, right on the coast. Yeah, it, yeah. it is. It is the resort center for all the wealthy South Americans. January and February, they say if you own a condo or an apartment there, you can pay your entire year's mortgage off what you can rent it for in January and February. Uh, Punta del Este. Yeah, Punta del Este. So I like Uruguay. When I first started over there, and I, my impression of Argentina was that it was like living in the States in the 50s. Okay? Uh, and I was over there talking about that, and somebody said, you go to inside Uruguay, it's like living in the States in the 30s. <laughs> I'll never forget that, but I had some very pleasant times over there. I enjoyed it. It's a, a rolly city. You know, it's got hills and stuff, and it's got water on both sides when you get down to that part of it, and uh, it's, a, it's a lovely place. They call it Tranky because it is not the absolute hectic metropolitan nightmare that Buenos Aires can be. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a small little Buenos Aires kind of. Tranqui, that's a good Spanish word. That means calm. Tranquilo, tranquilo. Uh, yeah, tranquil. Uh, yeah, Punta del Este means uh, eastern tip. Boy, they got some high-end stuff in that place. Because you got to remember, do. Uruguay sits there abutted on the north by Brazil abutted mm-hmm. on the west by Paraguay and abutted on the south by Argentina. So you got the two biggest countries in South America there, and Uruguay used to be like the wild, wild west of financial stuff, okay? It oh. was the unregulated South American place and all the money from all of South America going into Uruguay to be processed. All the major financial players in the world are there, Okay. But now this is interesting because when I first got there and I'm trying to interview people to get done what I was needing to get done or wanting to at the time, and I stumble into a guy that knows somebody that is uh, helps set up corporations. And down there, accounting firms can do that, okay? And so I had a meeting with this accountant and the guy that was the go-between. And at that point, I start handing them, I sit in, go into the meeting to sit down, and I hand them my affidavit. And I want them to read it to try and understand where I'm coming from, you know. And so uh, uh, the guy that we met, I left it with him. And and the next day we walked in and they said, man, we don't understand any of this, what you're doing. And we said, we've seen guys like you come down here before, but we ain't never seen one come down here like you. That's exactly what they told me. And uh, it was interesting. So the guy that's the accountant, as I'm trying to explain this, he goes, I think I know what you're talking about. He said, my brother works at a bank, 
and we've just had to start filing these tax forms and they take it out of his every week out of his paycheck. But because I'm an independent businessman, I have to pay him in a lump sum at the end of the year. And I said, well, the new world orders here now, aren't they? It yep. ain't the wild, wild west of finance anymore. That's right. Okay. Now, right, now. Uh, subsequently, I have read that now Uruguayans are, there's, they've expanded the category. It used to be the citizens of the U.S. and residents were the only ones that had, were taxed on your worldwide income. Okay. But now Uruguayans are too, and there may be another country or two that's been added to that. So what that tells you is that that type of the system is not in every country yet. See? And here's what they were planning on doing. When Obama went over and signed that Paris Climate Change Accord under much banner and celebration, and if you'll remember, when Mr. Trump got elected, that was one of the first things he did was pull us out of That's that right. thing. He did two things that were super important. He pulled us out of the TPP, the Trans Partnership, IPP, UPP, everybody PPs, you know, which was the final nail in the com in the coffin for country sovereignty, and he pulled us out of the Paris Peace Accords. In that session where Obama signed that document initially, of course, Biden, that's one of the first things he did was put us back in. Okay? Yeah. So it shows you what hot potato it is, all right? And one of the reasons was that the session where Obama signed it initially, they added two new clauses to the treaty. Do you, have you heard me talk about this, Harv? No, no, I Okay, haven't. well, they added two new clauses to the treaty. One was that everybody that's born have a birth certificate anywhere in the world. And the yeah, other tell that to the Amazonians. The other was to tie you with ID back to that birth certificate. So there is the final global plan for the system we have been living under and gradually other countries for a long time. Yeah, where at least I know I'm free. Yeah. But to answer your original question, I liked Uruguay. If it wasn't for the fact that it was sea level and you get both the cold and the hot effect of humidity, I would have considered moving there, actually. Yeah, that's, uh, that's strange. Well, has uh, my jarhead buddy gotten himself Brent? sobered up yet? Brent, Brent, you back, got your coffee, all that stuff, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed? Uh, halfway. Okay. But, um, <laughs> That'll do. We'll take it. We'll take it. Aren't the, aren't the Arbustos down in Uruguay? Pardon me? Aren't the Arbustos down in uh, Uruguay? Are they a family or what? I'm not sure who they are. Yeah, the bushes. The bushes. Oh, oh, well, that's pretty interesting now. Interesting you should ask that question. Evidently, Bush didn't go down there and do the deal. He sent his daughters. Yeah. All right. And he sent his two daughters down there. The reason they bought that land, it wasn't in Uruguay, it was in Paraguay. Uh, and okay. the reason they bought it in Paraguay was because that land sits atop the world's finest aquifer. And that's yep. the aquifer that feeds out down below Uruguay. And I'm going to tell you, they got the best water I've ever tasted. 
Okay. Right. Unbelievable so, good. And one of the old, whatever the common brand is, has been there since 1880 or something, and they put nothing in it, and it's this fabulous water. And it's one of the biggest aquifers in the world. They bought it over that for that reason. Now, let me tell you the additional part of the story. It's what I heard down there. After they bought the land, they went down to Buenos Aires, okay, to see see the big city and spend some time there. Buenos Aires is a cool big city, I'm telling you. Best one I've ever been in, all right? And so down there in that culture, and they got secret service detail because they're Bush's kids, right? And right. the damn Buenos Aires thieves <laughs> stole their purses. <laughs> they had to go get new passports to leave. <laughs> They're so Is good down there. Effect. When the Queen of Spain visited Argentina, they stole her tiara and her cape. Wow. <laughs> That's quite a bunch down there in Argentina, I'm going to tell you. Wow. So well, anyway, Brent, I'm sorry that story just comes to me, and they're interesting, and I'm going to inject them today. Yeah. Uh, Thursdays is kind of that kind of day we can do this kind of conversation, you know. But let's get back to something front and center with this affidavit and of, of total import and hear what you got to say about it, Brent. Okay. Uh, under number 5B, B or yeah. 5Bravo. That a person be subject to the jurisdiction of Owen. Oh, All right, uh, five alpha. Five, that okay, now be born or naturalized in the United States. Oh, need an S on that, don't we? Yep, we do. Ooh, editing, <laughs> editing. <laughs> you bet. <clears throat> All right, I just I just changed it. Uh, I only found two of the four that I found last night. I was a little more into it then. I was just in listening mode this morning. Well, I mean, technically, as I've come to understand, I mean, you can sever the connection with that one sentence. But I understand our people, you know, been studying law and this, that, and the other. Most of them are wound up tight as a spring. They find an outlet, and they want to pour that stuff on that page. And you're welcome to do that. Just make the one precaution is you can't don't tell a lie about anything because that's where they can bust you. Okay. Right. Oh, Harvey tore him up on this. Yes, he did. Go ahead. Um, Harv, you might want to file it just for grins and and giggles at the uh, property records office up there in your county. Um, Oh, yeah. It can be a conversation starter like it was when you went to the Board of Elections and gave it to that uh, supervisor gal. Yeah, exactly right. Uh, and I met, matter of fact, last night, uh, uh, Lou and I were talking about it, and uh, or she's over in Thailand. But I started telling him about having met the new clerk of court for this county last uh, this past October. She had won the Republican primary, so and there was no Democrat candidate. So she was the... Uh, Anointed one. Yeah, she was the clerk of court uh, elect at that point. And uh, what a nice woman. Uh, I, I saw, it was, it was 
you know, quitting time for the government employees there in town. And I saw a fellow uh, with a pickup truck about my age who had uh, uh, an airborne sticker on the window of his truck. So I just had to jerk his chain a little bit. You know, those (laughs) inner service uh, jokes. And, uh, you know, I always... I always feel a great comradeship with uh, the airborne soldiers. Uh, anybody that's got the guts to jump out of a perfectly good airplane to get into a fight uh, has got my admiration. And uh, so anyhow, we were talking, just yucking it up and uh, having a good time. And then his daughter walks up and she's the new clerk of court and and she was awfully nice and uh uh, i think their political opinions are quite in line with mine um so uh sounds like he needs to needs to read how to escape the matrix yep and so does she but uh this this could be you know i'm i'm going to call on her and I'm going to call on a lot of folks. This but, is a funny endeavor from the standpoint of I've been scratching and clawing and fighting for so many years to get people's attention on this and to understand it myself. And, man, I'm finally starting to see the traction start. And I can't yeah. tell you the positive feedback loop that it jars me back with. Okay. Because I would have thought years ago that those appearances on Joyce and a book that's well-written and all that would have done this. And, man, it just didn't. Okay? And now all these years later, and my persistence, really, and dogged determination to just keep plugging and plugging and plugging. And I know the only way that you lose is when you quit. Okay? Well, seed doesn't sprout till the rains come. Well, and it's, the and rain, well, what I've come to understand is it's not my doing, and it wasn't y'all's fault. It wasn't time yet. And we right. had to wait on the master timetable guy to get to the point where he says, I think, it, I think this is maybe ready for this to happen. But you and the people in general have got to get receptive. That's what I've learned. You can put it in front of people, and they're just, for whatever reason, it doesn't take. But at some point, that's changing. It's changing now, okay? But at some point, it's going to change big time. And we're going to get a shot somewhere. One of you guys is going to know somebody that knows Rick Wiles or or whoever else, Janda or any of these other guys. And I think with the strong base that we've got, when we get that one shot on the next level, that it's going to go through that next level of, of people's influence uh, that have more than I do, uh, like crap through a goose quite yeah. frankly, because uh, the people gonna, then are going to be ready for it. The fact is they're just not ready for it. Maybe even just yet, but we're making ground. We're gaining ground. Well, with this push on, uh, on the second amendment against the second amendment coming out of, uh, call him slow. Joe doesn't really do it justice. It's just, uh, he's, he's 
you know, the best you can say about Biden is that he's a slightly animated cadaver. <laughs> At, I used to say that. I used to say that about uh, what was her name, uh, King, so and so Scott King. You know, Martin Luther King's widow. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, Coretta, 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 Coretta. She always appeared so completely unanimated that you'd think she had been lifted from Tussauds Wax Museum, and that's when I first started referring to someone as a slightly animated cadaver. Um, the uh, this this administration. Uh, is making such an assault Holy on so smoke. many things. There, there, yeah. Here is a good example of these people being their own worst enemies. Here well, they've I, been shut up for four mm-hmm. years and shut out. Okay. Yeah. And now they get back in control, and, buddy, they just opened the floodgates on every vector of their agenda that they've been held back on or that's been countered. And. Yeah. Now, on top of the way they took power, the onslaught of even I saw a story of even a Democratic mayor in Texas getting on and publicly pleading Biden to stop the overflow. It's killing his city. Yep. And uh, so we're going to see more and more people uh, becoming receptive to this message. I think Uh, so. And the. uh, the, the uh, I don't know the the the, uh, the hand of government has now become a chokehold. It has, yeah. And, people there that well, they've had to take the mask off to get the agenda to this point. That's their and problem. You know, okay. Yeah. One of the things that they have not uh, they have not mentioned it, that I've seen in the press is that Donald Trump, you know. Uh, oversaw the largest tax cut in history. The Democrats have passed the largest tax increase. This whole COVID thing, uh, they flood the, mon- the, the market with monopoly money. So through, in, you know, inflation is referred to by many economists as the uh, cruelest of all taxes. It is, yep. Yep. And so... You know, I don't, I don't file anything with the government because I don't owe them anything, uh, a tax return or a tax. But they tax me anyhow through inflation. Oh yeah, the hidden and tax. It, it's the hidden tax. Uh, it's a cowardly, deceptive practice, and who gets hurt the worst? The little guy. It's opposite from the idiot tax. You know what the idiot tax is, Harvey? No, tell me. That's the lottery. Oh yeah. Because you stand. It's a tax. You stand in line to pay. Yeah. (laughs) I'll tell you a funny thing. I was, you know, I had a lot of people don't know. I had a remodeling business, and I was working on uh, a job. on Sewell Mill Road in East Cobb. That was right near your old joint. Sure is. And uh, as a matter of fact, the house I was working on 
was where the original mill stood. Okay. And they still had they still had some sections of the old flue or flume, a, a pipe that was about two feet in diameter and fed the water from upstream to the uh, to the mill. Must it was a massive undertaking. Anyhow, uh, that was what I was working on, and I was filthy, dirty, and uh, tired thirsty, hungry, I went up to uh, the gas station quick trip to you know, get, get, uh, get filled up, get something to drink and all that. And uh, I was standing at the counter, and this woman, undoubtedly from Ohio, uh, I'm just telling you, that's, that's a different breed, Ohio. Uh, so Harvey, you're prejudiced. That's right. I'm prejudiced against everybody. I don't like anybody. <laughs> and, uh, uh, so she's got, she's, she's kind of plump. She's, uh, uh, in her sixties. She's, uh, got this short butchy haircut, gray hair. And she steps up to the counter and asks the clerk, can you tell me how, can you tell me how to, play the what the rules are for this such and such game and he said well no ma'am that's that's a new game and i haven't uh studied it at all i don't know and she said oh i was hope i said wait a minute i can help you out and she said oh good and i said so what you do is uh you take what did i say you 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 just Put your money in, and you lose. <laughs> <laughs> That's all there is to it. It's easy. <laughs> and, and of course, I wasn't cracking a smile or anything. Just put your money in, and you lose. And she said, "Oh well, it's for a good cause. It goes for a good cause." And I said, uh, "Even if I lose, it goes for a good cause." I said, "Really? What's that?" She said, "Well, for the schools." I said. Really? You consider public schools, government-run schools, a good cause? <laughs> Man, I mean, you know, you talk about somebody that was spoiling for a fight. Here I was, yeah. you know. Uh, but uh, I know she decided she wanted nothing to do with this uh, well, Georgia redneck. Well, mm-hmm. Back in the early days, Florida was the first state to set up a state lottery. And one of my my best friend at home, his oh, yeah. wife was in charge of the lottery there locally in in Panama City, and I used to hear all the horror stories. But in those early days, you'll remember, man, they'd have people driving down all the way from Kentucky right. to go stand yep. in line for an hour to play the Florida lottery. Yeah, I remember uh, uh, right. people calling friends to get them to go over into Florida and right. buy some tickets for them. <laughs> right, yeah. right. Samuel, was that you trying to say something? Do you want to talk about the lottery? Are you a winner or something? No, I, uh, that article that you mentioned that I sent you, I got a, a humorous thing about a definition of a Yankee that I'd like to throw in here for you. Uh, he says, historically, to designate that particular ethnic group descended from New Englander, Englanders who can be easily recognized by their arrogance, hypocrisy, greed, and lack of congeniality. And for ordering other people around. They are the chosen saints whose mission is to make America and the world 
into the perfection of their own image. <laughs> Hillary, Rod- <laughs> Hillary Rodham Clinton is a museum quality specimen of a of the Yankee. Oh. Self ruthless and self aggrandizing. <laughs> wow. Who wrote that? Uh, it's Wilson and the Steve Lorenzo thing on the Jacobins because they these guys the, the the Yankees were so so jealous of the Southerners they wanted a blood feud started and you know Brown was their man. I mean Emerson and Thoreau. All these guys put him above Jesus. Yeah, in- I've I've read those. Uh, I've read those things. Uh, those uh, eulogies, hagiographies. Uh, yeah. Uh, there's some. Listen, I go back to this article. I just couldn't thumb through it enough. To, uh, I was familiar with that, that. What Samuel read to us, but I'd encourage you if you've got any. Uh, any dogs in this fight that this, this is a very, very interesting article. Um, Northern hatred for Southerners long predated their objections to slavery. Abolitionists were convinced that New England, whose spokesman had begun the American Revolution, should have been the leaders of the new nation instead they have been displaced by the southern slaveocrats like Thomas Jefferson. It's a fascinating article. I'll stick it again at the end of the day's show description, and you can all access it, and uh, it's worth reading. You know, uh, there were an awful, you know, the, the yeah. first abolitionist society was in eastern Tennessee. It was not in the north. Is that right? Uh, the, yeah, the abolition movement started in uh, what is, t- I think, the very site was in what is today named Johnson City, Tennessee, over there near Jones, not not Jonesboro, not Jonesboro, but something Burr over there. But over there in the eastern Tennessee, it was on you know Appalachians uh, up at, there in the Appalachians. So. Uh, uh, it's there was a strong uh, abolitionist sentiment in the South, just not near the plantations. <laughs> and well, uh, the the article gets into the economics of it and how it was just the whole world got rid of slavery without a war. It was all about another right. issue, right? Right. That's right. Six percent of the of the Southerners own slaves. He gets into that, right. and he says all the, all the hardworking farmers were against slavery in the South because it was unfair competition. They couldn't compete properly. Now, this one I'm going to go back to an earlier show when Roger was talking about uh, what's his name, the uh, University of Georgia football player Herschel. Herschel Walker. Herschel Walker comes from a little town in east central Georgia. Wrightsville. Uh, Wrightsville, Georgia. Wrightsville is in Johnson County, Georgia. And prior to and during the so-called Civil War, there was not a single slave in Johnson County. 
yet the ancestor of one of my friends uh, was a volunteer Confederate soldier from Johnson County. And he was wounded in one battle and came home and convalesced. And as soon as he was uh, able again, he got back in uniform, went back and joined his unit. He got shot again and uh, or wounded again. And uh, they took him back home and he convalesced once again, put the uniform back on and went back into combat. He was wounded and left for dead on the battlefield at Gettysburg. And uh, three days later, the burial party found him uh, still alive. And uh, so he was wow. uh, put in a POW camp and uh, released at the end of the war. But there was a man who not only didn't own a slave, he had never seen one in all likelihood. Well, the point that he was making in the article with the 6% was against the war being fought over slavery, exactly like your story. And he said it's just untenable to think that the majority, only 6% owned slaves, and hundreds of thousands of southern farmers and their sons went off to war to defend an institution that was inimical to their interests. Exactly. Uh, I mean, that's an absurd thought. Uh, so, uh, anyhow, this is, uh, yeah, but they did manage to, you know, I can't defend slavery and you don't, I, I know that. Uh, but at the same time, uh, a devotion to truth compels me to state that it wasn't what people claim it was, the, the institution of slavery no, in the no. United States. It was not this horror show. Uh, uh, yeah, in places it was. You know, individual uh, slave owners were uh, really cruel, but there were an awful lot uh, who weren't. And, and, you know, it's interesting that the, that the most white slave owners never selectively bred their slaves. Yeah. But the one that did was a big black slave owner in South Carolina who did openly and publicly. Yeah, he was in Charleston. He had been born, given the name April when he was born, which was quite common. Guess when he was born. And uh, when his master gave him his freedom, uh, he petitioned the court to have his name changed, and I can't remember his name right now. Yeah. But uh, he wound up owning 40-some-odd slaves, and he had them. Uh, one of the things he did was manufacture uh, cotton gins. And he got into, he had a, he and his family had a pew in the largest church in Charleston, right there on the ground floor. He was a wealthy, wealthy man. Mm-hmm. And, and so here we were, this overwhelmingly white congregation, and it was probably uh, 
Episcopalian, Anglican, whatever you want to call it. And uh, and there his family was. Uh, they had a pew on the main floor. And when the war broke out, it was against the law for black man to serve in the South Carolina uh, armies. But one of his sons was a captain. And it just goes to show you that in reality, the color that matters is green. Yeah. Yeah. You got money. You're on the inside. And the other thing, there wasn't very many people of those folks that owned 40, 50, 60, 100 slaves. Most of those slave owners maybe could afford one or two. Okay. And they were financing them more than likely. Okay. Well, you're not going to go out and take the labor that your family depends on unless you're just a total idiot and treat them indecently. Yeah. It just, uh, it goes against human nature to, when you really think about it, that they've hung this whole atrocious experience in our country that still divides it to this day, okay, yeah. on something that was false. Well, uh, uh, who was it? Was it James uh, was just talking about that only one country fought Samuel. war to Samuel? Yeah, thank you. I remember uh, hearing Michael Hoffman, who is the great revisionist historian. Historian, if you're not familiar with him, you you should be with his work because he's done some very revealing work. And when I became familiar with him, I heard him on Pete Peters one night, two nights in a row actually, when he was promoting the book that he wrote, which you can still purchase, called "They Were White and They Were Slaves." Yeah. Okay. And he went around the country to college universities promoting his book and giving lectures. And I remember him saying the in all those lectures, the people that were the most offended, who do you think? White. The blacks. Because that threatened their victimhood. Oh. Mm. That's a great well, book. It tells you just how in the early days when they when Irish kids could be picked up off the street and these little English scruffians that didn't have parents or whatever in England, and they'd just impost them and throw them on a boat in bond servitude, okay? Yeah. And it was the whites and the Irish that worked in the fields, and if they could afford one of these expensive black slaves, they were in the house. Well, it's... Uh... That's where the you term know, redneck like, comes from. Yeah, I never, I never understood any of that. Of course, even here in the South, coming from a Southern family, that information was hidden uh, about, you know, some of the inconvenient facts of that age. But I ran into, uh, oh, Dick, somebody or other, but he was the he was Irish. And he was the mayor of either Smyrna or Marietta, Georgia. I don't remember which. Lived in both of them. Yeah. And he told me that that the levees in New Orleans were built by Irishmen, not by slaves. And I said, what? He said, no. He said... They had malaria and yellow fever down there. Nobody's going to send a valuable slave into that uh, environment. They just they just hired Irishmen, paid them 
paid them by the day. And uh, if they died, they just buried them in the dikes. So they got Irishmen all buried all in those dikes, those levees. Mm-mm-mm. And I was, I was just, you know, my mouth was <laughs> wide open. Ah. <laughs> and I started checking into it. And it's the same thing up here in Tunnel Hill. They got a plaque out front that says that the tunnel was dug by slaves. And uh, I read somewhere <laughs> that that wasn't the case, that it was dug by Irishmen. I said, why do you have that plaque out there? They said, oh, well, the state of Georgia sent it up here, so we put it up. I said, it's a, it's a lie. <laughs> you, know, you know it. And, I, and they, they shuffle their feet, but they still got the plaque up there. Uh, but no, there were a lot of uh, Irishmen supposedly, who were killed in cave-ins digging this railroad tunnel. But uh, no one knows where they're buried. Well, look who who built all the railroads out west. It was the Chinese. That's right. It all led up to Wong Kim Ark, the case that we center on that's so pivotal. Yeah. Uh, And uh, and in the east, uh, if you read Thomas Sowell's book called Immigrant America, uh, he points out that, uh, the old wisdom was that, uh, there's an Irishman buried under every mile of railroad track in the Eastern United States. It was that brutal. Uh, you know, they, they certainly didn't have OSHA out there supervising the safety, uh, devices for, uh, railroad workers. And, you know, that's that's an interesting point because it brings up the fine line between adequate regulation and overriding regulation, okay? Mm-hmm. And the example that you just brought up with the railroads and OSHA is a good one. Um, from my knowledge and background in the radio industry and learning and teaching that broadcasting for 10 years, it's interesting in the radio industry because there was no regulation when the medium was invented. It was only AM on the dial, and you could stick up a tower in your backyard and put whatever transmitter on it and broadcast whichever direction you wanted to or all of them at, at whatever time of day. There, there was no regulation, and the result was because of the lack of regulation the industry that was so, had so much promise that we're using here today a hundred years later almost strangled itself okay because you'd turn on a frequency or trying to tune something to the radio and you'd get three or four stations all on the same channel drowning each other out yeah okay and it was through the federal communications act of 1934 year after the bankruptcy that they came in and started regulating the fledgling industry of radio and gave it the base and that it grew into, and here we are all those years later. But again, lack of regulation almost strangled the industry. Well, that that reminds me of uh, the book uh, For Good and Evil. Oh, what a great book. Yeah. Uh, And... You know, he's pointing out that taxes serve both good and evil purposes. And uh, I hate to say it, but about all I see of it is uh, is evil. I, I, and, we should plug that book. The author's name is Charles Adams, I believe. 
That's right. You can access him and some of his columns and this particular work on audio of it over a discussion of it over at LewRockwell.com, L-E-W-Rockwell.com, a great conservative site that your cousin hangs around at and contributes to occasionally. And um, he is an American who moved to Canada and started writing these books on the tax system. He was an accountant, I believe. And uh, his book, and the, 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 the reason we know about that is I'm sitting home one night watching, of all channels, C-SPAN. And C-SPAN used to have a program on there, may still do, called Bookends. And they bring yep. authors on to talk about their work. And I tuned it on that night. It was Charles Adams on this book. Okay, I went out and bought a case of them. Had hunted them down, hunted the publisher down, and bought a case of them and, and handed them out and sold them to people, you know, there, so other folks in our group would have them. It's called, for no. good or evil, the effect of taxation on the, the downfall the of civil. The, you have the title right there because it's kind of long. It's, it's, it's etched in my memory. The, uh, for good and evil, the impact of taxation on the course of civilization. Or the rise and fall of civilizations, maybe. But anyway, he goes back all the way to Egypt and shows how the tax system caused the downfall of Egypt and traces it up historically through all those generations on how it affected different key civilizations. And if you've got any interest in the history of it, eh, or particularly in the taxation issue, which if you do, I'm sorry for you. But if you have interest in those areas, that's a really, really good primer to read because you'll understand it a whole bunch better. Yeah, I'm reading the title now, and it is For Good and Evil, the Impact of Taxes on the Course of Civilization. There you go. Yeah. 1993 uh, yep. publication date. Yeah. Great book. I don't remember how I got that. It was before I met you. But was it was it? a brand new book. I just saw it in the bookstore. I see. And and well, uh Well I remember I one the, of the great moments I had was getting to turn John Benson onto that book with his oh, interest in taxation. Yeah. Somebody's trying to get in. Are they? Who is yeah, that? Yeah. It's Samuel. Hey Sam. Um what you know, it may have been, may have been hard here for the Irish when they came and uh, and uh, but where they were coming from is another lie we've been told. Yep. They used, they called it the the potato famine. Well, it was actually the, the the English that had the problem, and they went to Ireland to steal all their food, which included beef, butter, eggs, everything. Half the British fleet for five years surrounded the island. Five million died. They're buried in mass graves, and they escaped here to have a chance to survive. And that was the blueprint that they developed with the Sassoons in India that they just laid over Ireland. Isn't it unbelievable? I went back. I wanted to mention this, so I'm glad that came up. Thank you, Samuel, for stimulating my my subconscious here. I went back yesterday in the afternoon, and this is the second time I've listened to this, and it's an hour and 40 minutes long, okay? And it's an interview with a guy who is a Canadian, I believe, that's written extensively and done tons of research back into the era of the opium wars and the Sassoons. And 
they go over in that hour and a half, and I sat down and listened to it contiguously yesterday. Before, I'd listen to it, and I'd get interrupted and come back, and you can't pick that kind of detailed story information up listening to it like that, or at least maybe you can. It's just not as easy, okay? But that, I put it on the end of the show description yesterday, and I'll put it up there again today with this other article that we were discussing earlier. But if you got a chance and you want to understand even what's going on today, all the blueprints for what's going on today were done by the Sassoons in India and China. And those two opium wars set the stage for what we're still dealing with today. Yeah. Well, uh, if I may, I want to jump back over to this because there are some people on here who don't have any uh, clue about what I've <clears throat> what what I've decided on as my uh, final declaration of status. And uh, Lou pointed out to me last night on the phone. He said, "Yeah." He said, "I like it." Uh, because you spent uh, the the first part overwhelmingly telling them what you're not, and then you've you closed it out by telling them what you are, and so that's that's what I did. And I don't know. I don't want to sit here and read this thing. Most of you have already. We've Heard talked it, about but, all the key points. You picked them up from our discussions and what you've learned around here. But And the absolutely. point I tried to make uh, is in case anybody does want to do anything additional with your affidavit, it's best to keep it to one page if possible. And the reason for that is because should you want to go down and do things like file it at the property records office, if Harvey does that, they charge you on filing by the page. Keep it to one page. You don't need to make it too verbose, okay? It doesn't need to be that way. You can make it one sentence, and it's effective. And that's one of the big realizations that I've come to is that all you have to do is rebut the presumption. You could probably just put in there, this is to rebut the presumption from birth that I'm a citizen of the United States under the 14th Amendment. Boom, that does it. Yeah, exactly. But. I also want to persuade people who are reading this who are not government officials. Yeah. I want to educate yeah. them. Yeah. And so this is not just a uh, here. Look at here. You don't wall. believe me? Look at what I filed. Bam! And hand them one page. Yep. Well, I did that last night uh, with my brother, and I said, "Do you understand what you've read?" He said, "No, not really." I said takes a while let it sink in so i left the copies with him uh, but uh the the thing that uh that i did put in there there were a the couple of things that i thought were important to me because of where i planned how i planned to use this uh and 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 that was in number eight bullet point or paragraph or whatever, eight. Uh, this affidavit is submitted to legally and lawfully rebut the fraudulent legal presumption, which was perpetrated upon me at my birth 
that I am a citizen of the United States, that's in quotes, under the scope and purview of the 14th Amendment's federal citizenship, and that such federal citizenship grants me, quote, civil rights. Well, what was important to me was to put in there the words upon me. And Roger and I talked about that yesterday, last night. And uh, uh, I want them to know that they have committed uh, a, a crime against me. And, uh, and it involved so, fraud. Yeah, it was fraud, and it was perpetrated upon me at my birth. And now I'm, they're going to rue the day. Uh, I know a bunch of gunners around here, and we're going to start having some meetings. And uh, and it's all in just getting across to somebody that it's not their power, it's yours that's been stolen from you through this mechanism. Yeah. And and I, I redid the, that phrase instead of saying I'm non-resident residency and alien to the citizenship of fortune. I, I just changed that around a little bit and said I'm non-resident to the residency of the 14th Amendment and alien to the citizenship thereof. Yeah. Same. Uh, yep. And then that final statement is I just taken right out of what's the document. Uh, you might, you might put an alien to the political status of the, uh, you know, I, I, I prefer to use that phrase, but you can use citizenship however you want it. They get the idea. Yeah. Uh, I use it to differentiate so, it in my mind so we don't get over into the confusing citizenship area. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but that's why I put the citizenship in quotes. Okay. Uh, but uh, so the 10th one that I slipped in after I talked to you last night was I hereby declare, I hereby declare that I am a national, but not a citizen of the United States. And boom. And, uh, close it with their sentence. That's right. So then the last one is I invite any person who has reason to believe, you know, yeah, you come to, come to the bar and swear out an affidavit under penalty of perjury. We'll be glad to talk to you. And of course, if you're new and don't understand why we utilize it, cause you don't have to use an affidavit. Okay. It says in the passport instructions, you can include declarations. Yep. including affidavits. It's just that they're like super strength because now signed under penalty of perjury to rebut anything that you've got in there, they have to do an affidavit rebutting the facts you're stating and they've got to sign it under penalty of perjury. Yeah. So it's kind of the game we used to play when your kids king of the mountain. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, One thing I would have put in mind, Harvey, is yeah. something, uh, a Bible site. Okay. Because what, I, what is I, it? I, well, I wish I would have put one in. Um, oh. I used to use them in my brief in court on my original jurisdiction argument. And I tell you what, the judge and the prosecutor, that, this is like throwing holy water, you know. Yeah, on the <laughs> devil. Throwing holy water on the devil. I think that was the phrase that I. Those guys just hated it. I mean, it just was. It was just so. Oh, yeah. They they don't like. And 
They don't like it. It's it, it's the. I mean, when we there's a guy called I think his name is Mike Paluca. He talks about the founders and the founding principle and the king not being a, a godly man was their reason to say there's somebody higher than the king. And that was the whole reason for the revolution, and that's what they based it on. Yeah. Uh, well, he uh, he was not a godly man. He, uh, like, like his predecessors, he was uh, living off the the blood and flesh of other human beings You're talking about king george uh, the third yeah yeah you know it's those. interesting king george the third was the first time that english was spoken in the english court i didn't realize king that, george the was, second and the first they spoke german yeah yeah you know the word george the name the name George. Jorge. Well, yeah, Jorge in Spanish, but the the root meaning of the word George comes from the Greek geo, or meaning earth. So George was the name for a farmer. Huh. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. L- let me, while so. we're on the subject, we hadn't polled the audience too much today. We got some good guys on and gals with us there. Did any of you guys have any comments or questions? Or if you're new, I'm hoping Terry shows back up with us from Houston here one day and we can help him along the freedom path. But if any of you guys got something to inject, we'd love to hear from you. I guess they just like to hear us discussing stuff, Harv. Yeah, I'll tell you. I have something. Okay, yeah. good. Um, on Harley's um, last uh, sentence in his affidavit, I invite any person. Is there a specific reason why you use the word person? No. And what- I, I took that, uh, I just took that blindly out of uh, another another affidavit and i didn't give it any thought james why don't you well you got an echo from somewhere i think that's that's probably me i'm outside in the car that's probably me okay why don't you substitute why don't you substitute individual what do you think james uh is an individual basically the same thing nope as, as an entity well, individual comes from the part of the concept that an individual has rights and duties in the same entity. Okay. Okay. And in fact, the word individual is the root word of indivisible because of that concept. Ah, okay. So that's why okay. if you that's read 26, you read CFR, 26 CFR, like we did yesterday, like yeah, right. you says yeah, you an says income tax an income is owed tax by, is all by all individuals who are citizens <laughs> of the United States and residents, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. Right. Okay. All right. I'm good. But Thank an you, entity, right. for, entity, for clarification, for James, or just addition, uh-huh. uh, an entity, uh, can, an also entity can also be a corporation. It can be a partnership. It can be a trust. It can be a sole proprietorship. It can be an individual. All those okay. things. Okay. Okay. So, right. Harvey, that would probably be a good substitution for person, any individual. Uh, yeah, I think... I think I, I, 
Go ahead. Go ahead, James. Well, James. it's the echo no, you're hearing. I'm listening. James, hit your, James, hit your mute. Because we're yeah, I'm, I'm going to mute right now. All right, I'm gone. There I mean, go. I'm here, but I'm gone. Okay. I'll tell you, they shouldn't give Marines uh, telephones complicated <laughs> things like that. Complicated you know? communications equipment. Yeah. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, I don't know what I'm doing with one, huh? But uh, James is one of the highlights of uh, 2021 for me. That uh, – that license tag of his is the best thing I've seen. Yeah, very, very well done, James, from my yeah. quarters, too, by the way. Yeah, and I'll tell you, I've got, I've got an affinity for people with the two-up, one-back personality. And for those who never studied infantry tactics, there was there's a formation uh in in ground attack you know ground ground warfare uh where your formation is with three units and they're arranged either in a wedge or an inverted wedge the inverted wedge is two up and one back and that's what most guys refer to it as, just two up, one back. That is the attack formation. If you are in the assault, you go two up and one back. And if one of your, one of your front units is uh, losing, you quickly move your maneuver element, the one in the back, to reinforce it. If one of your units breaks through the enemy line, then you move your maneuver element to exploit that gap and to really rout the enemy. Well, the old motto we had in the basic school was that the definition of the infantryman's dr uh, dream was two up, one back, hot chow, dry socks man you couldn't make a you couldn't make a grunt happier than a good fight on the on the offensive to be able to get hot chow and dry socks and if you've never been without dry socks uh in your boots you you, you don't know what misery is like <laughs> a wet sleeping bag yeah for, for a week yeah just like it. And so, uh, you know, Harvey, one of so, the things I yeah. did when I was younger, I went back to Alaska after we left and I went up there for the summer to try and make some money and, um, ended up in, it was one of the great summers of the biggest forest fire outbreak. And they would take us up. I, I fought on one mountain fire. Okay. And mountain fires are real different from flatland. And so they'd take us in a helicopter up there on the side of the mountain, and they'd drop you off, and you got a, a container of plastic visqueen to make you a tent, and you got a box of sea rations, and every third day they'd bring you in a hot meal. And I was up there for a week or two, man. Uh, wow. It's, uh, that'll, that'll get you, and work 12 hours a day, too, by the way. And uh, that'll, uh, that'll get you. 
boy, that will. Uh, that's that's like warfare. That's really exactly like warfare. There was uh, a bunch of San Francisco guys that were in that crew and a bunch of potheads and stuff, you know, from the 60s. Yeah. And they were off, and they'd get uh, over. You always had to wear your yellow hard hat because they were coming over with helicopters and dumping those big containers of water on hot spots. And yeah. these guys were off over there smoking pot, and they took their hats off, and one of those helicopters dumped a whole load of water on the skies. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> Funny old well, memories. I hadn't thought about that in years. Yeah. Harvey, in, yes, sir. I, in my affidavit, I, I did mention – heavenly father twice um and with the word dominion but in my opening statement you know you've got your name and being of sound mind uh, lawful age i solemnly declare to all and my heavenly father because oh. i wanted to into it and then i added a, a thing uh below and it's really a legal statement most people don't get it but uh uh, it, that one for me was, uh, I may be homeless, but I claim dominion from my Heavenly Father. That's also in my my statement as a separate item, because I don't consider land or anything, etc. That is my dominion. That is, that is from my Creator. That is my, um, I was created in, in His image. Yeah. And I'm, this document is about stopping them from me worshiping them, in my mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, those very, you know, there's so many valid points that we can make in this uh, struggle for freedom. But we've got to be, what is it, wise as serpents, gentle as doves? Well, maybe a well-armed dove. But uh, we do have to use a great deal of wisdom. Let me tell you some of the power of this. It came up in a story I saw yesterday. Um, the center for the Miami basketball professional team, the Heat, yeah, was doing some gaming with the – I guess they've got whole gaming sites with groups of people that do all that and sit in on it and all that. I'm not – privy to it but i i think that's what's going on out there and this guy's doing a public gaming exhibition with somebody for a group of people and during the game he says something about well you damn kike and says something else very derogatory and oh, they really? have absolutely crucified this guy he's kicked off the team uh, just got all kinds of flack anybody see that story besides me I did see the headlines for it. Okay. Well, uh, here's the point I'm trying to make. You yeah. can go out there and run down Peachtree Street at high noon saying, you dirty kikes, look what you've done, and they'll never do a thing to you. This information is in, just like you were talking about the styrofoam bricks earlier, Harvey. Yeah. This is the styrofoam, man. They won't come at you and do anything to you because they don't want to draw attention to the message. That's, you know – Years ago, it's a good story to tell everybody at the end. There's a there's a seminary or a, a, a Presbyterian college, 
in very, well, just outside Chattanooga. It's called Covenant College. And all you got to do is hear the word covenant. You know, it's Presbyterian. Uh, And a woman called or went by my brother's house knowing that he was the only one within a thousand miles who had the spine to do anything. She went, she went by there and said, Charlie, they've got an art exhibit up at Covenant College, and they've got picture, pictures of Jesus and the, other, and the patriarchs in the nude. And he said, what? He said, no, it can't be. She said, oh, it is. It's true. So he got in the car and drove up to Covenant College and went into the sanctuary, the sanctuary. And they had these pictures. Now, Charlie had some friends who were portrait artists, and they were good. He said this was absolute junk. The quality of the paintings was absolute junk. But they were blasphemous. They were good blasphemy. And and he pulled out a pocket knife and slashed all these pictures to pieces. And he just got back in his car and drove home. And, of course, there was this horrible uproar. And he, he got home and he called me. He said, man, I'm in trouble. And I said, what's going on? He said, now, this is back when you know, we were living in Atlanta a long time ago. And uh, he told me what had happened. He said, I might be under the jail or something. I said, no, you won't. You can just relax. Nothing's going to happen. He said, why? I said, well, uh, Covenant College doesn't want all of their financial supporters to know what they've done. They're, they don't want people to know that they've had nude pictures of Jesus and the patriarchs, Moses and everybody else hanging in the sanctuary. And I said, they're not going to do a thing. She just relax. And uh, sure enough, he went back up there the next day and he was waiting to see the president. The president goes into his office, starts walking into his office. And Charlie said, I don't know. don't remember the guy's name. Charlie said, uh, John, I need to talk to you. He said, not now, Charlie, not now. And all of a sudden, he realized who did it. Nobody but Charlie had the guts to do it. So he he turns and he stops and he says, why'd you do it, Charlie? Charlie said, well, if somebody painted a nude picture of your father and put it on the wall, what would you do? And... So that was that, and it wound up with uh, the uh, presbytery, the body that, you know, the ruling body for uh, that that denomination of Presbyterians, the uh, uh, PCA, Presbyterian Church in America. They censored the college for that art exhibit. Really? Yes, sir. Good deal. When it got out, when the word got out, they couldn't, 
they couldn't take the heat. So uh, it was just as I told him and just as you said just now, they don't want the word getting out. Let me tell you what, they're scared to death of this getting legs. And we've seen evidence of it the whole time I've been doing it. Okay. I've seen it. You guys wouldn't have, but I did. And it's just a conclusion I've come to that I know every one of these that like you're going to put in the mail to them today, Harvey, every one of them, they get up there. Somebody's sphincter muscle tightens a little bit up on the seventh floor. Okay. Yep. And they can't, they've got no rebuttal and no comeback. And not only do they have no comeback, they can't do it because it brings attention to the message. It's a double entendre for them. Sure. That's the whole thing. Okay. Is if, they, if they acknowledge it, then they, uh, they spread but, the word. Well, they, when they acknowledge it, they convict themselves. By yep. nature of the fact that they can't rebut it, they have publicly convicted themselves. So, so that's where we are. You guys can't hear the whistler there in the background. The audience can, which signifies that we're towards the end of our two hours here today. But uh, it's that Thursday day. Talked about you know Uruguay and gave you some world geographical personal experiences that are pretty interesting. And uh, hope you got something out of today and the talk on the affidavits and maybe strengthened your resolve a little bit more if you're on in limbo on the fence about getting that into them, but it's your power. It ain't theirs. It's theirs because they've stolen it from you through fraud and then tricked you into giving them your consent your whole life. That's their power. And until more of us start pulling it away from them, they're going to continue to have it. Okay. So that's kind of where we stand into the show right here, folks. Hold on and I'll get this clicked out and those of you who are out there we'll see you tomorrow with brent and